another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Allie. This is Jason. In today's episode, we'll share our discussion with the Chief of Pediatric Surgery at the Children's Hospital of Colorado, Dr. Thomas Inge. Al and I spoke with Dr. Inge about how residents can set themselves up for a successful match into pediatric surgery, and also about Dr. Inge's fascinating practice in adolescent bariatric surgery. So let's get right to it. Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. Today we have Dr. Thomas Inge with us to talk about pediatric surgery, residents' role in caring for pediatric surgical patients, and a somewhat unique specialty of adolescent bariatric surgery. Dr. Inge went to medical school at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine, where he received both an MD and PhD. He then completed surgery residency at Stanford Hospitals and Clinics, and then completed his pediatric surgical training at the University of Alabama Birmingham. Dr. Inge is the Chair in Pediatric Surgery and the Chief of Pediatric Surgery here at the Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Inge, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. All right, so uh, we start by asking all our guests to describe their particular path to where they are now. So could you tell us how you came to be a pediatric surgeon? Was this something you knew you wanted to do from very early on in your education or something that kind of developed during your training? For me, it kind of developed during training. As you mentioned, I'm a Virginia native and went to college and medical school in Virginia and um, went to the West Coast for surgical training where I was first exposed to general surgery and all of its pieces parts, um, including children. I did enjoy pediatric surgery there, um, but enjoyed a lot of other things, minimally invasive surgery, for instance. But ultimately, you got to make a choice, and I chose to, um, to enter the pediatric surgery match and matched at a place that actually did a lot of minimally invasive pediatric surgery in Birmingham, Alabama. So that was uh, nice because in, you know, 1998, minimally invasive surgery was sort of just getting off the ground in, in at least uh, children's surgery. And um, and it's been a valuable, you know, a valuable uh, tool since that time. So we're doing things now um, that we're really, we're doing things routinely now that were uh, very much, you know, just cutting edge back in the, that time, like tracheosophageal fistula repairs, yeah. thoracoscopically, and um, esophageal atresia, a lot of abdominal atresias that were uh, only done open in the 90s, and now we're doing those routinely. So as our listeners know, our, our, our podcast primary focus is on resident education and the resident experience. So obviously, pediatric surgery is different in a number of ways when it comes to the, the patient care uh, compared to what we do with, on the adult side. But are, are there specific differences that residents should be mindful of when it comes to the pediatric patient as they approach their training, You know, things that they should be mindful of as it comes to how they approach the operating room or on the wards as well? Yeah, so I, I think uh, I could go in a number of different directions with that and make a lot of jokes because um, <laughs> you know pediatric surgeons do... Uh, make a lot of jokes, but no, that aside, you know, kids are not just little adults. Um, you know, they're particularly when it comes to, you know, brain growth. Um, you know, we are taking care of patients in a period of their development where we are beginning to understand more about the effects of anesthesia on, you know, uh, synaptogenesis, and we, you know, uh, where as before we might have been waiting until a one-week-old is, you know, three months to do an elective procedure just because we want a bigger a bigger uh, patient to work with and, and not such a tiny, tiny structures. 
Um, we're much more conscious nowadays of this idea of neurological development and you know these vulnerable periods. And so you know if there's a a, a hernia that is is really uh, not acting badly in terms of becoming strangulated and so forth, we may push out even to six months of age, whereas before, yeah, we would take care of it at, at two or three months of age. So things like that are are different. You know, adults have undergone all of this development by definition. And so we're very thoughtful about that. We're very thoughtful about nutrition, of course, as it relates to, to growth when it comes to management outside of the operating room and really quite uh, concerned about providing adequate numbers of calories for particularly babies or, or toddlers that are not taking oral intake and, and making sure that we're knowledgeable of what their needs are and providing them uh, good surgical nutrition. I think that, you know, that the other piece to this is a social piece, and that is, you know, the patients can't uh, often tell us exactly what the problem is. So we have uh, a bit of uh, deductive reasoning that goes into that, but then a lot of interaction with the parents. And so that's one thing that the residents will um, get the the very clear sense of compared to in the adult hospital where you might have a patient who's 40 years old and very articulate and, you know, the kids uh, not so much sometimes, particularly the preverbal kids. Mm-hmm. And you're depending uh, on, you know, parent report and, and family members. And so the patient becomes, you know, um, a broader entity. One of the things that I'm sure some of our listeners will be thinking about, I feel like for many people who go into pediatric surgery, their first experience on pediatric surgery, whether they are a medical student or a resident, they are like, I love this. I must do this the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I have colleagues who want to be pediatric surgeons or residents that I worked with when I was a medical student who are going into pediatric surgery. And a lot of people have said that to me. When I did this, I just knew that it's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. For all of the reasons that you kind of just said, that the disease processes are varied and interesting and they enjoy working with families and young children, But one of the things that I also hear from them is that it's incredibly competitive and can be a little bit daunting. So will you talk with us about, for the students or residents who are listening, how do you get into a pediatric surgery fellowship today? Where should you be setting yourself up? Is this something that I need to know when I'm a medical student? Yes, yeah, so I, I would say not. I mean, um, I think it, it is a competitive process. But in terms of when you make the decision or when people make the decision, it really varies. I think what um, what people are looking for on the you know on the side of the committees that you know that are ranking uh, applicants to pediatric surgery is we want to see people that are very interested, people that are, are smart, uh, people who have been productive in uh, whatever, you know, whatever they've done to date. Um, and it is, you know, uh, very common, as you know, to have uh, uh, several years of academic work that residents are doing in the, um, in the context of their, their five-year clinical, uh, clinical program, another couple years of research work. And that may be basic science work. It could be, you know, basic science in, you know, cardiovascular biology. But it's a, it's a time to be innovative. It's a time to be productive. It's a time to uh, really distinguish yourself among your peers. And, and again, it it's doesn't have to be within areas that are, are specifically germane to pediatric surgery. 
and doesn't have to be uh, you know clinical research or, or basic research it's it's really just a time to distinguish oneself and and then there's you know the kind of the the, the personal commitment and the, the reasoning for it um, that I think we all look for uh, some kind of a, a personal contact with the field be it great rotation in medical school or uh, or during residency where you've uh, kind of identified um, with that specialty and and can really just speak to it from the heart so to build on that for applicants to residency programs who've identified pediatric surgery as a potential career path for them, are there specific things they should be looking for within a, uh, within a residency department as it pertains to the pediatric rotations that you feel are, can set a program apart or that can set them up for success when it comes to matching into pediatric surgery fellowships? Well, you know, the um, part of the, the process, of course, is letters of recommendation. And so... Um, being able to uh, develop a, a relationship with uh, one or more of the pediatric surgeons at your program uh, is important. I think that um, you know the, that the residents who are in places that don't have um, a pediatric uh, surgery fellowship or don't have many pediatric surgeons, uh, period, you see them actually going to do their couple years of uh, of, of academic work at places that do have uh, either a lot of pediatric surgeons or, or pediatric surgeons that can mentor them in a um, in an academic sense uh, during that uh, that couple years, um, so certainly you know getting a you know getting your your name heard, getting your face seen at podium presentations at our uh, society meetings, the American Pediatric Surgery Association or APSA. Um, the surgical section of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Those are the, the two probably most common places where residents that are very interested in pediatric surgery will submit their uh, work and uh, therefore you know, be seen and uh, be able to, uh, to set a, kind of connect with the specialists in the field. Then those specialists will um, necessarily be looking over their applications in the future. Okay, so to be honest, I've been looking forward to this talk because you're interesting niche in adolescent bariatric surgery. So growing up in Texas and Oklahoma, I was exposed to uh, the obesity epidemic and the comorbidities associated with obesity pretty early in my education and have long held an interest in obesity as a disease process. Jason, obesity does not exclusively exist in Texas. I, I don't mean to suggest that. But, but there's none in Colorado. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that either. But certainly, I've not been exposed to adolescent bariatric surgery. Uh, could you talk a bit about uh, the uniqueness of, of the approach of bariatric surgery in the adolescent population? Sure, no problem. Um, you know, when I was in residency, uh, learning about uh, surgical treatment of obesity for the first time and seeing adults that were suffering with uh, this or that, diabetes, you know, high t hypertension, and so on, and saw the remarkable nature of what could be accomplished with, say, an hour and a half uh, in the operating room and a good laparoscope, and to see that, you know, weight loss that starts uh, so quickly and the comorbidity resolution, I was impressed. And then I made this decision to go into pediatric surgery, and I felt like all of that was behind me, and I never would do those kinds of interesting cases anymore. But... Soon after finishing my fellowship and taking my first uh, position uh, as a faculty member in Cincinnati at the Children's Hospital, I, I realized that there were teenagers out there that were undergoing tracheostomy for obstructive sleep apnea because they were so heavy. 
And well, good news too is that the pulmonologists and the ENT surgeons were also witnessing this and began asking the musical question, you know, is there anything else we can do about the underlying problem rather than just bypassing the problem, say, with a tracheostomy tube? So I think that was, you know, probably the impetus for me to say, you know, what can we do kind of at a system level to set up programs that will thoughtfully look at patients and, um, and help decide, you know, when does this make sense? And, you know, what are obvious indications or contraindications? And can we get a consensus around this, not only within our hospital, but maybe around the nation? Um, right. So that was sort of back in the 2003 era that we first started thinking um, about uh, a national consensus on adolescent bariatric surgery. There were no guidelines, you know, written down anywhere. And um, and so we did pull together uh, through the professional organizations uh, that uh, in pediatric surgery, pulled together a group of, of nationally representative uh, academics, um, surgeons, government folks, CDC folks, NIH to to really talk about what that might look like, and that uh, that's actually something that we published in the in, in pediatrics, which is the flagship journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so fast forward then throughout the, um, you know, the next few years, uh, here we've published a clinical practice guideline uh, with essentially no data or very little data to base it on, but just a need that kids had, teenagers had in particular, for a particular clinical intervention. Just to get into the nitty gritty for a second, what were some of the indications that you all collaboratively published? Yeah, so the indications actually were not what we weren't very creative about. They were built in large part on what the indications for surgery were in adults. Where we were creative, I think, is thinking about you know what um, what are the age considerations, what are the skeletal maturity considerations, what does the consent look like, you know, yeah. for these kind of operations where there's a lifelong adherence to a certain dietary and lifestyle plan. Um, and can a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old, you know, really understand what they're getting themselves into? Um, so th- those were the kind of things where we really had a lot of debate. And I want to know more. Like, what are the age considerations? Excuse my naivete, and it's been a few years since I've rotated at the Children's Hospital. But what are the age considerations that you guys make? And what does that consent process actually look like when you're having that conversation with a family? Sure. So, um, you know, by law... Uh, children, um, minors, cannot uh, consent to uh, surgical treatment. So parental permission has to be granted and written uh, permission. And for certain operations that are, say, elective operations, teenagers who uh, do have, um, you know, the ability to, 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 to understand what it's about do need to provide uh, their own informed um, assent. Um, which is it's they're, they're going along with this and that they're uh, willing to participate in their own success with an operation um, if there are, you know, um, follow on things that they have to do to be successful. Um, and so that's an important principle. The other principle that's important is, you know, that, um, you know, that that you are considering um, uh, what is in their best interest and in offering or not offering surgery. So there are some kids, uh, teenagers with low age, you know, let's say uh, preteens that might not be able to consider 
you know, what is in their best interest. Um, but what if they have, you know, really bad obstructive sleep apnea and have a predictable um, bad outcome because of that or heart conditions, et cetera? Um, do they deserve the consideration of surgery, even though they can't make an informed ascent uh, type of decision? Developmental delay is another one. So it gets very complicated very quickly. And we have uh, had occasion to work closely with our ethics committee mm-hmm. on just the clinical ethics of, you know, when do we, when, where do we feel comfortable offering or not offering uh, surgery? We did not define a, a, a low age limit um, because I think when you, when you start doing something like that, you really get into a lot of, you sort of open yourself up to criticism for, well, how did you precisely decide that number? And what about this person? If you've said it's 12 years of age, what about this 11 and a half? What about this 10-year-old who has such and such a problem? Uh, Maybe they can't walk because they're so heavy and surgery would predictably lead to a greater mobility or quality of life or coming off insulin that they're on for diabetes. So instead, uh, what we set out in the early days there was uh, this notion of skeletal maturity. And, and that could be based in the, the theory that, that if you do an operation to restrict the intake of nutrition, um, that you might in some way interfere with the attainment of physiologic stature or physiologic maturity in other ways. Now, since that time, I think a lot of us have really questioned the validity of those underlying assumptions because... You know, we actually are not doing a malabsorptive operation in these cases like a biliopancreatic diversion or something. That, that would be, I think, very tough to justify. Uh, but we're, in general, doing operations that do not interfere with, um, you know, with macronutrient nutrition, the kind of nutrition that you need to attain a physiologic maturity. But you're in fact uh, sort of right-sizing the meal, and you're 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 doing something that will uh, cause weight loss. And at least with the operations bypass and sleeve nowadays, um, we're not doing anything that we've ever really seen undershoot. So if we look at the literature in adults, and we see, for instance, in Asia, where a, a certain parts of Asia where you can see diabetes develop at much lower BMIs. And they're offering surgery at BMIs of, say, 25 to 30 Mm -hmm. to treat diabetes. We don't see these people getting to BMIs of 12 or 15. We see them getting, you know, maybe a 20-pound weight loss or 30-pound weight loss and plateauing there with no diabetes. And so uh, the energy regulatory system and the weight regulatory system is quite a complex topic, but it's, uh, it's been borne out time and time again now that these operations are not operations where you just lose 100 pounds no matter where you start. You generally do uh, end up, if you're operating at lower BMIs, for instance, at BMIs that are, that are healthy and not uh, failure to thrive type BMIs. So certainly obesity as a disease is very multifactorial. It's not just their physiology or genetics, but there's societal in- impacts, there's cultural impacts and familial impacts. And so the approach to treating it is not just surgical. There is certainly a multidisciplinary approach on the adult side when it comes to dietitians, uh, psychologists, etc. Is the approach to the adolescent bariatric population the same? And is that focused more on the parents of the patient or are the patients involved in that process as well? Yeah, so I would uh, have to say that it's very much a multidisciplinary uh, team sport uh, from that standpoint. You know, the 
Um, in adults, I think it is, um, it's certainly the habit also to have uh, all the disciplines aligned and, and at the table that take care of these patients' multiple problems. What we've tried to do here at the Children's Hospital in setting up our program is, is do it all in one place, in fact. Um, and have the endocrinologist, the dietitian, the exercise physiologist, the surgeon, the nurse practitioner, kind of the, it becomes the glue that holds the program together, all meet with the patients in the same place the same day. And that tends to work very well uh, for families in particular. And we do um, uh, certainly, and I failed to mention the psychologist, a critically important member of the team that helps to assess you know, these sometimes complex kids with multiple comorbidities and multiple, let's just say, uh, psychological or, or even psychiatric problems that, that we see. And the parents and the children are, um, are interviewed separately um, because there is that notion that, you know, a fairly high percentage of our patients come from bariatric families. So families that have had bariatric, a parent, um, mom or dad's had bariatric surgery, been successful, and now wants to know, well, mm -hmm. can the same thing be done for Johnny? And so there is this, you know, part of me that is, is always looking to see, you know, is mom or dad coming in with a guilt conscience now and bringing in Johnny, um, who's 100 pounds or more overweight and uh, is, is wanting surgery done, but Johnny doesn't want any parts of it. And so we do have to sort out, you know, is there... Uh, is there a real autonomous uh, desire on the teenager's part to work with us on this treatment approach? And, um, and because that is where you're going to you know, engender that, that kind of feeling that, that they're going to be able to stick with the plan postoperatively too. And then I'm just curious, so as your patients then grow into maturity and adulthood, what has been your response from them uh, when they come back and see you? Uh, do you get a chance to interact with these patients past their pediatric age? And what is their what are their thoughts about having gone through that procedure as children? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I had the kind of the academic bug, if you will, um, many, many years ago and um, kind of set up the my practice in Cincinnati to be able to learn as much as we could about the patient's long-term planning the seed that this is a long-term follow-up program. It's not just operating on a 17-year-old and, oh, by the way, when you turn 18, we're going to push you out into the adult world for your follow-up. Um, in fact, we have always indicated to the families that we want to do 10-year follow-up on these patients and, um, and, in part, really understand what may be the unintended consequences of certain ways of taking care of patients. And it's not just surgical procedures, but it's, you know, the dietary okay. recommendations that we give as well and what, you know, the stages of the gut diet progression and where we are telling you you need to be at one year and two years, the vitamins and um, and minerals that are prescribed. So, we wanted to learn as much as we could, and we realized the limitations of our ability to do that if we didn't have a partnership with a good sponsor for the research. And so early on, I went to my NIH project officer. You know, I didn't know that she was my project officer at the time, but the people that we pay through our taxes to, um, to talk to, you know, people that want to apply for funds to do great research. And I found that extremely valuable process. And so I submitted a grant in 2006 to look at the long-term effects of adolescent bariatric surgery, the outcomes uh, grant. 
and and it was it was ultimately funded after a few cycles and and that was i guess it must have been 05 that we initially submitted it's funded in 06 and now we're funded until 2022 wow. so we've been continuously funded now this is our third cycle of funding to do that long-term follow-up. And we're not just looking at weight, of course, and weight loss durability, that's a big part of it, but um, we're looking at really all of the important domains of health, um, endocrine, cardiovascular, uh, behavioral health, substance use and risk-taking behaviors, um, even intelligence now, bone health, uh, female um, fertility issues, as well as um, other GI effects and long-term surgical effects as well other operations needed. Um, so now we have 250 teenagers that are all more than five years out, some of them now 12 years out, and, um, and we're really you know, keen on getting all of them back in for their 10-year follow-up. Are there any highlights so far that you'd be able to share with us on the follow-up after surgeries? Um, I can. Um, over here on the wall, you see our New England Journal article. That was one of the things that uh, that was really quite the um, experience to write and uh, get out there, though. But it's important to get out to the broadest audience these kind of results from patients that are kind of a unique cohort like this. And one of the uh, you know highlights is that uh, that the sleeve gastrectomy does appear to perform just as well as the uh, gastric bypass. The study was actually initially powered and planned for just looking at bypass because we didn't know anything about the sleeve really when 2005 we were at the grant. But, um, but the sleeve does perform at least in the short, shorter midterm, the three-year time point. We have now looked at data out to five years. The sleeve continues to perform extremely well in comparison to the bypass. Uh, the band does not perform very well at all, and that's not necessarily to impugn the device, but rather um, it's a complex patient population, and it takes follow-up, and it takes adjustments to the band, and they just don't perform as well in the adolescent population. One of the key hypotheses that we're testing in this uh, from the very start, though, was is uh, bariatric surgery, when performed in adolescence, as um, effective or perhaps more effective at treating comorbidities that are earlier in their development in a teenager than, say, an adult that's had diabetes for 10 years before they have the operation. So is that teenage diabetes, hypertension, um, and other cardiovascular risk factors, do they reverse more readily in teenagers or more completely? And so for that, you'll have to wait for the next <laughs> paper because I'm just now looking at the data. But in general, the hypothesis is supported. So I'm very um, exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited to get that one written and out there uh, because I do think it bears on a, a question a lot of pediatricians have to ask and a lot of parents have to ask is when is it too late to really be as effective? Is you know can we be more effective by offering surgery at 15 than 25 or 30? And I think the answer is yes. Okay, so to zoom out a bit, uh, being the chair of surgery here you have the opportunity to see pediatric surgery from kind of the 30,000-foot view. And on the adult side, we certainly see this uh, phenomenon of subspecialization, whereas pediatric surgeons often carry the hat of still being a general surgeon while also doing very advanced procedures. Do you see, where do you see pediatric surgery going in the future? And is some of the subspecialization taking place in pediatric surgery as well, like we see on the adult side? You know, I, I think it is. You know, there are examples of, um, you know, some of the, the top 
top five, top 10 children's hospitals that are developing either practice habits or programs that really are drilling down deeper. Here, for instance, we, you know, just in terms of practice habits, we've um, we've uh, taken on uh, or adopted the philosophy as um, is going on in many adult hospitals that we need to have a tax service, a, a, a um, trauma and acute care surgery service, because there's just so much uh, work to do. We need to kind of divide and conquer. So a tax service and then also have a pediatric subspecialty service where, you know, we'll take care of more traditional um, baby surgical needs, uh, subspecialty service uh, attending of the week or round in the neonatal ICU and uh, take care of, of ECMO and take care of, you know, congenital diaphragmatic hernias and all of the uh, congenital um, uh, problems as well as tumors and things that are more subspecialty in nature. And, you know, the seems like 10 appendicitis patients that come in every day and, you know, the patients with empyema and need chest tubes and that sort of thing. All the ER consults uh, will go to another uh, another service. And we're developing, you know, other, other programs as well. For instance, you know, there are fetal surgery programs nowadays, and we have one here um, so that uh, patients that have an anomaly that can be identified early in their gestation or, you know, that, that would end up being either more difficult or impossible to take care of because, you know, growth and development continues to occur, uh, that we would like to be able to offer those those interventions. One example is this twin-twin transfusion syndrome where one twin may really uh, end up getting uh, shortchanged and quite <clears throat> sick and potentially uh, lost. We can do interventions for and eliminate this, you know, this placental share and, and do something very positive, you know, before children are born. Same goes for uh, myelomeningocele and um even in some places, treating diaphragmatic hernias by uh, occluding the trachea. So um, these are all uh, interesting things that I think we are continuing to push the, uh, you know, push the limits of, of science, push the limits of the size of our patients as well. You know, the, uh, the notion of operating on a, an 800-gram fetus or even 800-gram premature child is, is quite uh, daunting uh, for certain operations. Very exciting. Thank you for sharing all of this with us about your research and your job and what it's like on a day-to-day basis. It has been incredible. Sure. And very nice to meet with you guys and uh, really applaud what you're doing. Thank you. Jason, any interesting takeaways from the conversation? I'm sure that this was particularly of interest to you, not necessarily because Dr. Inge is a pediatric surgeon, but his niche is very, very specific with pediatric bariatric surgery. And I know that you are very interested in bariatrics. Yeah, his discussion about how they uh, went about the process of getting approval to even begin doing that procedure in, in adolescence was pretty fascinating of how they had to go to the FDA and get approval again uh, with the various governing bodies. It's not something you see often at all today where someone's paving a new path with a new procedure. So that was fascinating. What about you, Allie? No, I completely agree. I cannot imagine. I've never written an IRB that includes pediatric patients. Um, 
in and I have friends who write retrospective chart review IRBs about pediatric patients, and it still seems more complicated than in the adult population because we want to protect these minors. Um, so to actually go through a process where you're introducing a new procedure in children, I guess it's an established procedure, but it was new in children, uh, that's pretty remarkable. So I totally agree with that. It was just fascinating. What an excellent guy. I, I'm actually very excited to go back to the children's hospital again. <laughs> Don't forget, guys, we know interview season is coming up. If you have any questions for us, you can email us at rmspodcasts at outlook.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RMSPod. There was actually a really exciting discussion on Twitter last week, um, including some common interview questions that some of the other programs sent to us. So we will be using some of those in our mock interview, which is coming up soon. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.